Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow as we navigate these difficult times together. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And today, like everyone else in most of the world, we're recording virtually from our homes, each one of us. We've thought long and hard about how we in Altamar can keep shining a light on some of the overlooked stories and countries and realities during the all-encompassing coronavirus era. We're all inundated with news, data, advice, and fortunately, some heartwarming stories and some humor. And today, as the virus ravages the world's most prosperous countries, we're going to take a shot at analyzing at how the pandemic will affect and is affecting the most vulnerable populations in the developing world. And we're pleased to have Robert Guest from The Economist as a guest. Robert has recently written extensively on the impact of COVID-19 on Africa and other poverty-stricken regions, both from a health perspective and then also from an economic point of view. But before we hear from him, let's take a step back, Peter, and look at the current ever-changing scenario. Okay, so Mooney, as we thought about this podcast from our socially distant status, we're reminded that as the disease spreads in poor countries, this physical distance that we are all trying to adhere to is practically impossible. Families live in much closer quarters, streets are crowded, health systems are broken, spiritual practice is widespread, information is faulty, armies are politicized and leaders are often undemocratic, water is short supply, sanitation is hard to get, malnutrition is rampant, and there's a obviously a shortage of doctors and medications. And there's so much that's been talked about in terms of hospital beds. And let's let's get some perspective. Peter, Niger and Ethiopia, for instance, have 0.3 hospital beds per capita, while the European average, and let's remember that Europe is really kind of short on hospital beds, it's 5.6%, still woefully short. So if on top of this, we look at the current medical equipment deficit in countries like the US and France, who are supposed to have enough equipment to, to serve the population, we can only imagine what a poor village in India or a favela in Brazil is facing. So the vulnerability from a public health perspective is actually incredibly staggering. And Africa, which has largely been spared in this first phase of the pandemic, now faces increasing numbers of cases and affected countries. Latin America, with growing numbers of contagion, has a hodgepodge of experiences. You have countries like Colombia or El Salvador that have had set stringent stay-at-home standards in places you know, really early in this crisis, but other countries such as Brazil or Nicaragua have been hesitant to implant restrictions. And Mexico just put voluntary measures in place really late in the game. So we all thought about how many countries in the developing world have fairly young populations. So it's really still unclear how the virus will evolve. There are differing numbers on how many young people get the virus. We've all heard that some scientists believe that younger people have greater resistance to serious disease, but then some numbers point in the other direction. So hopefully, hopefully for the developing world, a younger population and aggressive containment measures, as well as learned lessons from other countries will be helpful. But many of these young people in developing nations have weak immune systems. They've been compromised by malnutrition, anemia, malaria, dengue, and infectious and immune diseases. They are not as strong. And as the WEF reminds us, washing your hands, provided there's water and physical distancing are fairly cheap. So that's that could be encouraging. And it's also helpful that multilateral organizations and NGOs, mindful of the fragility of the developing world, have uh, redirected their assistance and activated youth organizers, community circles, non-political actors, religious leaders as valuable allies. So that's somewhat heartening. 
And Mooney, I want to really sort of redirect the energy of this episode here today to really talk beyond the overwhelming health issues to the economic and political risks that are, in my opinion, just equally concerning. You know, to begin with, poor countries are held together by informal economies with almost non-existent regulation or labor and health protection. In Mexico alone, for example, the informal economy generates about 25% of the economic output. As the global economy is slowing down and most cities are grinding to a halt because of government-imposed quarantines, you can just visualize how entire sectors disappear overnight, leaving families completely penniless. I mean, I'm talking about fruit vendors, delivery men, cab drivers, Uber drivers, farmers, day laborers on the front lines of the crisis who are unable to stop despite working with no protections. So small businesses and growing industries like tourism, you know, they've disappeared overnight. You can think about what in a country you know, think about Rio and 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 how tourism is so important to the local economy, whether it's for drivers or for restaurants or for waiters and so that everything is now grinding to a halt. And then let's add the indirect jobs to the pile. And they're just as much at risk. Supply chains in agriculture and commodities are in danger. Closed borders, cash shortages, massive layoffs and liquidity issues. The lack of remittances that are a livelihood for many countries and increased government spending on health is also redirected. Compounded by decreased foreign investment make hunger and despair a chaotic and immediate reality. This could all create a perfect storm as well. And we've seen some outbreaks of this of civil unrest in countries that are politically fragile. And we've seen some evidence even in southern Italy that you wouldn't obviously consider a developing nation, but there have been civil disturbances from people looking for food and generally feeling the economic pinch. It can only be kind of a sign for the rest of the world. You know, I think those two points that you made, Mooney, just now, which is the issue of remittances, which is a huge issue for Central American populations who that depend on remittances from their immigrant families in the United States and African populations that depend on remittances from Europe, I just think is a is a is an ignored thing that I I think we're going to hear a lot more about. And the other thing that I'm just really worried about is this issue of civil disturbances because we're going to see more and more of this in the developing world. But I even think we're going to see more and more of this in the developed world. And as you mentioned, there was already some in Italy. And and beyond all of that, the politics of the pandemic just can't be ignored. You've got populists that you know run the crisis through arbitrary policies and improvisation. As you know, I mentioned before here, Bolsonaro in Brazil and Lopez Obrador in Mexico. You know, Latin American presidents that are both populist, but from the opposite ends of populism, have both tried to avoid quarantines and ignore the facts and were forced now to backtrack, losing valuable containment time. In Africa, at the same time as regional responses are crafted, weak institutions, non-democratic actors make ideology and political interests of the drivers of the response. And you have authoritarian governments that are expelling migrants and fanning the flames of xenophobia. The experiences of Ebola and HIV AIDS point to fragility of governments all over Africa, but just take the example of Sudan, for example. And when you talk about a healthcare in absolute shambles, think about Venezuela, where there was a health crisis way before the arrival of this pandemic. And now just imagine what it's like now. Well, the short-term outlook is absolutely grim, but here at Altamar, we're trying to look at reasons for optimism. And the developing world has a, a few 
kind of good stories, definitely a younger population. It has been given a longer heads up in the context of a global community that for the most part has overcome its paralysis and reluctance to work together. So there are benchmarks that many of these developing countries can look at in trying to impose their restrictions and their measures for economic reactivation. And as the pandemic reaches the most vulnerable, there's also more data, more aid, greater scientific advances regarding vaccines and hopefully treatment options in the short to medium term. I think you're right. There is optimism, but really only a coordinated response, real information, economic rescue, and generous trade when borders do eventually reopen are going to save the poor and developing countries from really massive suffering. And to give us some perspective on this, we welcome Robert Guest from London to our virtual table. As foreign editor for The Economist, Robert has covered Africa for years He's a former correspondent in Johannesburg, Washington, and Tokyo. He's an accomplished author, opinion leader, frequent TV political analyst, and his book, The Shackled Continent, Africa's Past, Present, and Future, was an international bestseller. Thank you, Robert, for joining us on Altamar. Great pleasure. So let me let me just allow you to set the stage for us. You, you wrote a recent piece in The Economist that paints a Uh, I guess diplomatically put, I should say, a sobering picture for the developing world. Coronavirus is only starting to spread in Africa and Latin America. And I I think you you foresee or you're, you're worried about a calamity. Can you just describe for our listeners what the developing world faces? So this was a, a joint effort by our, our, our global team trying to pull together a sense of what's happening uh, in these places. And, and the short answer is we're at the very early stages of the, the pandemic there, but there are reasons for being very concerned. So on the plus side, you'd say that developing countries tend to be younger than rich countries, and generally the virus doesn't hurt young people as much. There's a possibility that the weather in places like Africa might retard the spread of the the, uh, the virus. We just don't know for sure, but there's a possibility that hot and humid weather might. They've had quite a lot of notice. It's got there later because they're less connected to the rest of the world, so they've had a bit more time to prepare. Um, and there's the fact that poorer countries tend to be more rural. Uh, about two-thirds of the people in uh, low-income countries live in the countryside, and it is possible to do work like you know, planting yams and so forth while not getting too close to other people. So those are the reasons for positivity. Unfortunately, the reasons for negativity massively outweigh that. The populations may be young, but they're also immunocompromised. Many of them rates of uh, HIV and tuberculosis and malnutrition are much higher in poor countries than they are in rich countries. And and that can only be a negative. The large portion of the population who live in urban areas, uh, we're really worried about the degree to which transition is going to be uh, transmission is going to be fast in those places. Social distancing is extremely hard if you live in a crowded slum. Regular vigorous hand washing is very hard if you don't have running water in your home. And the idea of staying at home and not working. Uh, is is unthinkable if not working for a day means your family don't eat that evening. So it's going to be very hard to um, persuade people not to go to work. And that means that they're going to spread the virus. Robert, I have two questions kind of about the same thing. You've mentioned how it's really hard to comply with what the developing world is doing. What are some of the actions that you, you mentioned that the developing world has had notice? What are some of the actions 
that can be done that are easy to learn from that would be able to at least contain the, the, the size of the calamity? And then what are some African countries doing to diminish the risk that could be used as benchmarks for other countries? Because many countries have had notice and because they've realized that this is serious, uh, a number of them are trying to do something about it. The difficulty is uh, handling that trade-off between trying to make sure that fewer people catch the virus and die of it and trying to make sure that you don't damage people's livelihoods. And we've seen in India, for example, there was a very serious response that wasn't thought through well enough. So the, uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi suddenly announced that the whole country was locking down for three weeks and he gave almost no notice and he essentially shut down the sort of transport links between different parts of the country. And he hadn't thought about what that would mean for the very large number of migrant workers, people who come from the countryside of India to work in the cities. Now, if they're suddenly told you can't work anymore, which means you can't afford to eat and you can't pay your rent, their first reaction is going to be, we have to get back home. We have to get back to the village where there will be you know, a family support network and, and you know, food that's been grown in the ground in the village that, so that we can eat. And so they all tried to go back home at the same time. And the bus services and the rail services weren't working. And so you had enormous crowds of them in, in, in bus stations and railway stations trying to get home, but packed so tightly together that they were undoubtedly uh, spreading the virus to each other. So you have to think through what the consequences are going to be of each policy that, that you announce. There's a number of things that, that you, you can do. I mean, you see in South Africa, for example, they've really ramped up testing. They're soon expecting to be able to test 30,000 people a day up from, you know, well, obviously none uh, before the, the, the virus was known about, which was not terribly long ago. And they've also tried to do a 21-day lockdown to uh, slow the spread of the virus and try to, to contain it so that they can sort of use testing to identify clusters and, and, and deal with them and in the hope that they won't have to shut the entire economy down for a long period of time. But, you know, it's very difficult because nobody has, nobody's done this in practice in a poor country before. You know, South Africa's kind of middle income. And, and so what the consequences are going to be and how you can enforce these things is, is, is something that people are still gaming out. And unfortunately, we're seeing quite a lot of harshness from some of the governments and some of the security forces. I mean, even in South Africa, you've seen policemen just whipping people for being out in the streets and saying that this was necessary to, I'm not saying this is ordered right from the very top, I suspect it wasn't, but you know, people in the in the in the hierarchy thought that was a good idea. Uh, in Rwanda, the police have actually shot people for breaking social distancing rules, which is, you know, you you, you can't keep the population under that kind of pressure. People are going to ultimately not obey the, uh, the the guidelines if you do that. Is someone getting it right in the developing world? Can you think of an African or Latin American country that is kind of the the one to to look at and follow, even though it's early times? You know, you 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 have to learn from. A variety of different sources. So, uh, you know, China has shown what can happen if you can force everybody to stay at home. The countries that were best, I mean, the countries that coped best so far have been the East Asian countries such as uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. And these are quite rich countries, but they were the ones that because they'd had uh, the experience of dealing with quite bad epidemics of SARS uh, before, they had built sort of pandemic preparedness 
into their, their, their government structures. And so they knew about, you know, how to get testing in there early, trace the contacts of people using sort of, you know, apps and uh, um, mobile telephones to check who's, who's isolating themselves and who's not. Um, and, and, and they've managed to keep the, you know, flatten the curve in such a way that they've not had their, their health systems overwhelmed uh, and they've kept the number of infections down to a sort of relatively low level. All of these things are very hard to do from a standing start, um, and they're they're particularly hard uh, in in countries where you know the health services are so unfunded that it doesn't take very much to overwhelm them. I mean, a lot of African countries' health services have enough difficulty dealing with the infectious diseases that they've already got. If you have a sudden big surge of new ones, this is this is going to be very hard. I mean, you're looking at Countries like Uganda have got more government ministers than they have um, intensive care beds. Uh, your typical African country has, you know, fewer intensive care beds than, you know, one American hospital. So it's something I think most most poor countries are going to find it very hard to cope with this without help from outside. I think that's that's an important thing that is going to need to happen because, I mean, economically, with the the very rich countries, when you have a big panic like this the cost of government borrowing tends to go down because there's a big flight to safety and people want to buy, you know, US Treasury bills. The opposite happens in poor countries. The uh, the cost of borrowing for governments goes up. A lot of countries, particularly in Africa, are very indebted already. Um, so it becomes much harder for them. They've got a lot, they've a lot less space to borrow. Uh, and their economy is being really badly hit by this even before the virus arrives. So uh, tourism, which is a huge employer uh, in many parts of Africa, has pretty much collapsed. Nobody, nobody really wants to go and see the Masai Mara or Machu Picchu um, at the moment. Nobody wants to get on an airplane. The commodity prices are, are incredibly volatile at the moment. I mean, you've seen the, the oil price just sort of gone up and down and up and down. And most commodities have been very badly hit by the collapse in, in, in global demand caused by the, the new coronavirus. And so you're seeing economies collapse, uh, contracting and a need to pay people not to go to work, you know, a need to pay people to stay at home. And some countries like you know, Senegal has, has said it'll devote about 6% of GDP to trying to uh, feed people while they're under lockdown and um, to keep companies afloat so they don't lay people off during the, the, the hard times. But um, it's going to need external financing for that. I mean, you're going to need rich countries to firstly uh, restructure the debts of poor countries during this emergency, uh, and secondly, extend aid to them. I want to go deeper into the sort of what the rich world needs to do for the for the developing world, but I also want to talk a little bit about a thing that you mentioned in your article that really concerns me, which is the potential for social unrest. I mean, you have you have so many workers in the developing world that are informal. We Mooney and I talked about this before you came on. The in, and and you know whether it's a car wash person on, in Mexico City, a street vendor that is selling coconut uh, uh, in Thailand, or a you know person selling Kleenexes uh, on the streets in India, is these people are wiped out by nobody being on the roads. I mean, quite quite besides whether they go home or not, mm -hmm. there's nobody around to sell to. Tell me a little bit about how you see the the concern about social unrest. The bottom line is. Governments are not going to be able to give or should not give orders which are not going to be obeyed. They have to, they have, so they, they have to be sort of open and upfront with people. They have to be transparent about what's going on. And they have to try to explain to people, look, 
you're going to have to try and keep some social distancing, but you've got to do it within the bounds of what's possible. You can't tell someone uh, who's going to starve uh, if they don't work not to work. They're going to have to go out and work. People will go out and try to sell things. Now, maybe they'll try to do it in, in a slightly different way, you know, wearing wearing masks, maybe their customers wearing masks, maybe some of the things that they're selling, things that are related to the, 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 the crisis, you know, hand sanitizer, masks, towels. I mean, you know, there will be a lot of individual adaptations to this. But if governments say, we're going to try to do exactly what China did, when they're not as rich as China, they're not as organized as China, and they don't have the capacity to feed people who are not working, then that's not going to work. And you know, we've we, we've already seen, like I said, quite a lot of violence from police directed at people who are breaking orders. And but if 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 the whole population decides not to follow orders, then there is the, there is the potential for unrest. There's also, I think, the governments are smart enough to know how far they can push their people. One of the other things that worries me, though, is that quite a lot of places uh, you're seeing blame deflected onto foreigners. And that's true in, in, in the rich world as well, but I think it's it's more likely to turn violent uh, in the poor world. And we're seeing scapegoating of foreigners already in, in, in quite a lot of places. There's been some encouraging news about perhaps the African countries banding together and trying to put together a, a regional response how far is that advancing or is the, the general sentiment, as you mentioned, one that is more of xenophobia and shutdowns? I think there's, there's definitely use to, um, you know, regional leaders talking to each other. And we're seeing some of this in Latin America. We're seeing some of it in Africa. And it's, it's you know, they don't want to get into a massive bidding war with each other over you know, who, who gets the masks and they don't want to be uh, setting up huge bottlenecks at borders where you have lots of people, you know, trying to get from A to B. And because there are bottlenecks, they all end up getting crowded together and, and giving each other the virus. But I do think that the, you know, this is a, a, a pandemic. It's a global problem. It does need a global response. I mean, it needs national responses as well, because, you know, nation states tend to be responsible for health and welfare and security within their countries. But because there are so many countries that are going to be undergoing temporary massive liquidity problems, which could result in death, there has to be a sort of global version of what you're seeing in a lot of individual countries where, you know, you're having the government saying to banks, look, can you not foreclose on anyone for the next couple of months and you know if people can't pay their rent can you not evict them for the next couple of months because the, the this the assumption with this is that the shock is going to be very big but it's temporary you know it's possible to get through it but you don't want to set off a, a chain reaction where you know people get laid off from their jobs so they can't afford to pay the rent so they get evicted so they can't buy anything so more companies go bust i mean the only institutions that are able to push enough cash into the system to to prevent that from happening are um, the governments in rich countries and uh, the international financial institutions like the, the the IMF and the World Bank. Do you sense that the international financial institutions are doing enough? I mean, I have lots of friends who are spending at least a lot of their time and day, and daytime hours thinking about how to reprogram monies to developing nations, whether Africa or Latin America, in order to help. But is this just an issue of reprogramming or do we need massive new capital infusions? Uh, we need massive new capital infusions. That is possible, you know, because the, the amount that you have to pay people 
not to go to work in rich countries is is much greater than what you'd have to pay in in poor countries because wage levels are, are, are different and the amount you know we've seen with the amount that America and Britain and, and and Germany have have raised to deal with the crisis at home you know there is some left over at the end of that which could go a long way towards uh, alleviating this problem in in poor countries now you're still i suspect going to see at the end of the day that more people die in poor countries than in rich countries. I don't see any way around that. That's always been true historically. I mean, if you think back to the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1919, about 6% of the population of India died during that. Uh, it was similarly uh, appalling in, in, in parts of Africa, although the, the data are pretty sketchy. Now, I don't think it's going to be anything like that scale. I think that you know the the speed with which we are able to understand the virus to uh, think of treatments for it, to think of, uh, you know, ultimately develop a vaccine, which is the, the holy grail that's going to make, you know, to make the problem much easier to deal with, but it's probably quite some time away. Everything that we're doing now is, is about trying to minimize the, the number of deaths and uh, minimize the, the sort of destitution that this might cause until we get a vaccine. And when we get a vaccine, that, that, that changes things. But it's 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 a really tough it's a really tough thing. You know, I mean, you know, country Africa has lived through worse pandemics before. You know, HIV AIDS was significantly worse, but it didn't it wasn't as fast. You know, with HIV AIDS it took it took years to to develop the disease. It spread uh, much more slowly. It was a sort of slow building catastrophe. This is really sudden. It's airborne. You know, it can spread around the whole world in a, a matter of weeks. And so we, we just don't have the same time to respond. So the developed world is saving itself, both from a health perspective and an economic perspective. It looks like uh, the developing worlds, certainly Latin America and Africa, even though they have lead time and younger populations are, are extremely vulnerable because they can't survive a short term pandemic because of the issue of hunger, which really can't wait a lot. Do you see a new role for corporate diplomacy and companies to step in where governments and multilateral organizations and NGOs are, are, are just kind of overbooked and overwhelmed? Well, look, companies are doing a lot of things that are, are, are very helpful. They're obviously absolutely crucial to the, the distribution of food and, and medical supplies. They're part of the process of innovation and, and coming up with medicines for this and of course there's a great role to be played by by various charities you know you've seen um jack ma's charity uh, the head of the richest man in china head of the uh, founder of alibaba the sort of amazon equivalent there uh, has been donating you know respirators and masks to uh, pretty much all the countries in africa uh, so th there is a there is a role both for sort of corporate innovation um and for you know charity from from very rich people but you know, some of, some of the elements of this are, are very hard to deal with unless you have the scale of a government. So you take something like vaccine. When we've got a vaccine, when it's been invented, it needs testing. And then once you've figured out which of the various vaccine candidates actually works, you need to ramp up the production very, very fast. And that's something, you know, there's no there's no economic model where the, the profit motive is going to make you have the capacity to make enough vaccines for the entire world in advance, like ready to ready to roll when the thing, you know, is ready, because that's the sudden demand for this is so much greater than you would normally have. So that's that's the kind of muscle that only a government can have. And we, we, we may get that from China, we may get that from uh, a combination of rich countries. But um, this is the kind of emergency, you know, like a 
like a war where the the role of the state is crucial. I mean, there's a lot of things where that's not the case, but this this is what this is one where it is. Right. Let me ask you. We're running out of time, but let me ask you two quick questions. One sure. is: Are you impressed by the speed at which China has converted itself from being the epicenter of the virus and the suffering? to now being sort of the epicenter of generosity, particularly to the developing world? Well, look, I'm, I'm impressed with the way China overcame its initial terrible mistakes. I mean, the initial mistakes of uh, local officials hushing up, underplaying the virus, uh, denying it, um, and punishing the doctors who said, hey, we've got a problem here. Now, they've moved past that, and they moved to the lockdown, which has been uh, very impressive. And they're now, you know, they were already the the, the biggest uh, producer of many types of, of, of medical equipment, you know, masks, respirators, the precursor chemicals for um, antibiotics, all those things. They've ramped up production massively, firstly for their domestic market, and now they're able to help the rest of the world. And that's great. That's that's really good. You know, I mean, some of the uh, public relations things that they're, that they're doing with it are, you know, slightly less impressive. But the Overall, you know, they're, they're playing a constructive role. The, the questions that will come is, you know, when, when China ends its lockdown or eases its lockdown, will there be, you know, how bad will the second wave be in China? How much will that affect uh, their willingness to uh, supply kit to the rest of the world? Now, I'm hoping that the second wave will be significantly less bad because they know more about the virus um, and that they have upped their, their productive capacity enough that it won't. But, you know, this this is the story is not over in China at all. I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed with some of the things that they've done. But, you know, the, the response to this needs to be global. And, and frankly, there needs to be better leadership from the United States at the moment, which is extraordinarily lacking it. Let me ask you one final question. Are there sectors in the developing world that you're worried about not being able to rebound at all? I mean, we're all talking about this even in the rich world, but are there sectors of the economy that you're particularly worried about in the developing world? There will be lots of individual companies that will go bust. The advantages that enable you know, Africa to be a great place for tourism, they're not going to go away. The the abundance of commodities is not going to go away. The um, the knowledge that's in people's heads is not going to go away. But a lot of people are going to die. And that's, that's frankly, the biggest thing that I'm worried about. Robert Guest, thank you so very much for joining us on Altamar. Thanks very much. Mooney, I come out of this even more concerned, I have to tell you. I just feel like the weight of the economic burden on developing countries is going to spiral out of control as the world is just unable to respond to the amount of monies that they need. I mean, sure, I think debt can be restructured, but I think the amounts of vast monies that Robert is talking about needing to fix this is just not going to come at this time from the rich world. I mean, we're now completely self-obsessed uh, and and not wrongly so, but we're completely self-obsessed and each country a little bit on its own and for itself. And I just don't see how we're going to not enter a spiral of economic devastation, violence, rioting, sacking of food stores in countries where we have such informal and poor economies. See, I keep coming back to a more optimistic scenario, Peter. Obviously, Robert's assessment was dire. 
But he did mention several times how much we are a few months closer to a vaccine. It's a race against time, but definitely the the spread of the virus and the the developing world does have a, a lag behind the developed world, and it may, it puts us closer to a vaccine. Other issues like age, with whether the weather is going to be a positive factor, it's going to kill the virus. It's not clear. It's also a reason for optimism, and the fact that this rural Latin America and Africa is a little bit more protected. So I am not completely pessimistic. I'm also encouraged by some of the very responsible measures that some of the leaders in the developing world have taken and how they've taken advantage of the notice that they've had in the few weeks of very connected world of information in order to not make the same mistakes that the developed world is making. So not so pessimistic. Mooney, from your lips to God's ears, I hope in this case, the one time that I really hope you're right. (laughs) The one time. Well, let's hope. Thanks very much for listening to us, and we hope you stay safe. See you next time on All Tomorrow.